Hey, and welcome to the teaching podcast of Calvary Chapel, Newcastle. At Cows, we like to keep things simple. We are committed to verse-by-verse teaching through the Bible to help people know, love, and become fully committed followers of Jesus. It is our prayer and hope that this message challenges, encourages, and equips you to that end. Verses 30 through to 41. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord, with many others also. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John, called Mark. But Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement, so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Conflict. When you think about conflict, what images come to mind for you? Our thoughts about conflict are largely shaped by our experiences, aren't they? Probably a big part of that experience is what happened in your home growing up. How was that conflict handled? How do you think that has shaped the way that you handle conflict today? The reality is this, that you're about as likely to avoid conflict in this life as you are to be able to swim across Newcastle Harbour and stay dry. It's not going to happen. John Wesley and George Whitfield were two giants of the English revival of the 18th century. See, they began as good friends studying at Oxford together, Uh, but eventually they developed some theological and some methodological differences. And before too long, they separated ways, Uh, and then they were actively speaking against one another. Yet, they were both undoubtedly great men of faith and conviction, who were desperately trying to obey God's will for them. Now, my question is, if even men like this can't figure it out, what hope do we have? Perhaps the famous sceptic Mark Twain was right when he saw the conflict of this world and bemoaned, is the human race a joke? Was it devised and patched together in a dull time when there was nothing important to do? In the words of another famous philosopher, Taylor Swift, because, baby, now we've got bad blood. You know it used to be mad love but now we've got problems and I don't think we can solve them. Thank you, Taylor. We're in an interesting situation today where our passage seems to begin 
in a triumph over a conflict resolved. But as if Mark Twain will write, we go straight from there and right into this separation, this conflict. What are we to make of this? Well, this is what we'll be addressing today. But for the organised people among us, I've got a bit of an outline here. Number one, rejoicing. As the gospel redeems conflict. Number two, reality. See, conflict still happens. Number three, resolve to press on anyway. And number four, rely on God's providence. We'll see that the steps three and four are the result, the, uh, the response to that reality in number two. They also all start with R, just for the benefit of people who like that kind of thing. So let's pray, shall we? We'll ask God to be with us as we, as we look at this text today. Heavenly Father, oh, it's good to worship you. It's good to come boldly before the throne of grace. And we do that now, Lord, asking that your Holy Spirit would be in us and among us, that you would move in our hearts to hear what it is that you want to teach each of us today. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's get into the text. Verse 30. So, if you don't have a Bible, there are copies at the back. Please feel free to grab one or follow along on your phone. So when they were sent off, verse 30 of Acts chapter 15, when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch. And having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. So we need to stop already and ask, who is they? What is this letter and why did they need to deliver it? Well, if you were with us last week, you'll know that the letter in question here is the letter that was sent from the leaders of the church in Jerusalem to the believers at the church in Antioch. The people delivering the letter are Paul and Barnabas, uh, partners in mission who were already leaders in the church in Antioch, and two other people, Silas and Judas, known as Barsabbas, who were leaders from the Jerusalem church, who were sent from the Jerusalem church to add credence, to add credence to the contents of this letter. But what is the letter? Let me recap it really briefly. So, so the gospel's going out, right? The whole, the whole theme of this book is to the ends of the earth. It's gone from Jews initially to Jews in Gentile cities and now to Gentiles. And Paul and Barnabas, they're a part of this gospel going out and they've just finished their first missionary journey to Cyprus and to Asia Minor, modern-day southern Turkey. And they've come home. So the gospel's spreading. And there's this place called Antioch. And if we can get the map up there as well, this place called Antioch, you'll see it, the little blue dot at the top of the watery bit. That is home base. Down the bottom, the big red dot, that's Jerusalem. That's where the church started. And the new home base for Paul and for Barnabas is this place in Antioch, initially a Gentile city. So they've come to this place called Antioch in Syria. Uh, And it's become home base. And it becomes home base for the rest of the entire book of Acts. But see, these people come to Antioch. These people, they're called Judaizers. Why are they called Judaizers? Because they're saying that to receive the gospel, you also need to become Jewish. See? So you need to convert and to convert to all that Judaism entails, all the, all the laws, and especially for men, circumcision. Now, for some reason, there was opposition to this. I don't know why. But people didn't like the idea of having to get circumcised, and fair enough. But not only that... We'll see why it's a big deal in a second. Not only that, uh, there, is, there, there is an addition to the gospel of Christ. And so they take this issue, they take it to Jerusalem. 
Now, the believers there don't yet have the New Testament. So the final authority on, on, the, on the matters of, of doctrine are the teaching of the apostles, which at this point, it's authoritative for the whole church. And so the apostles and the elders in Jerusalem, they confer and they decide that indeed the gospel does not require one to become Jewish to have Jesus as Lord. And they also include this little bit of practical advice about things to avoid so as not to offend the large population of Christians that were also Jewish, which was probably still the majority of the Christian church at this time. And so they put this all in a letter, they sent it back to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas and Silas and Judas. So that's the letter. That's why they sent it, and that's the people sending it. And this brings us to the first point in our outline, because what we see next is something interesting, rejoicing. Rejoicing as the gospel redeems conflict. Let me see if I can show you what I mean. Verse 31, And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. So what did they do when they received the encouragement? They rejoiced. They were glad. They were happy. But what, what do we mean by this first point that the gospel redeems conflict? What do I mean by that? Well, imagine that you're there for a second in Antioch. You're a Gentile believer, right? And so you've received the gospel of Jesus Christ. You've accepted Jesus as Lord of your life and you know you're saved and you know joy and you know peace that comes with saving faith. But then these people come along and they challenge your assurance. They're basically saying, you're not even saved. So there's conflict. There's two groups. There's two opposing ideas. And as a new believer, you're worried. It's creating tension in the community of worshippers and perhaps you even question your own salvation. But then the, the, the gospel is applied, right? What do I mean? Well, have a look at the end of verse 31. It says, because of the encouragement. That's why they rejoice, because of the encouragement. This is the encouragement of the letter itself, because no one said anything at this stage. Now, for those of you who have been astute students so far through the book of Acts, you know that, that we were given the text of the letter, Where is the encouragement in the letter, if you look at that text? If you look at verses 23 to 29, where is the encouragement? Where's the pep talk? You know, you're doing well, keep going, keep it up. Where is it? It's not there. And this leads us to only one conclusion. See, that the encouragement was this, simply a reminder of the simple gospel. That's the encouragement. The wonderful truth that we are saved by grace through faith alone, in Christ alone, that is grace, a free gift of God. And to add anything to grace makes it no longer grace. And notice something, they don't even seem to care about these few prohibitions. Why? Because they're diminishingly insignificant now. So it makes sense, they rejoice. They are flooded with relief and they are overjoyed that they can confirm the true gospel message. That's it. That's the encouragement and it brings joy. But we'll circle around at the end and we'll see this truth again play out. 
But then we see Judas and Silas, these leaders from Jerusalem, continuing to provide encouragement, presumably just sharing these truths of the gospel and unpacking it with looking at the Old Testament, looking at other teaching of the apostles, looking at what Jesus has done, looking at the gospels which are already starting to be written. So Silas and and Judas, they continue to teach. And eventually they're sent off in peace. And it says in the next verse, verse 35, But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. Now verse 34, you might notice, is missing, right? Why is that? Well, it's missing in the best manuscripts is why. It seems there was a scribe at one point trying to be helpful by adding an idea about Silas staying behind. Um, Because later on in this same chapter, he's back in Antioch. But that's really an unnecessary concern. All you need to do is simply allow time for him to come back again and this concern goes away. There's something called textual criticism. And we know the text of the Bible so well, so well, with so much accuracy, more accuracy than any other ancient document that ever existed. We know the text of the Bible, okay? And we know it because of these little mistakes. It's part of the way we know it because there's these textual traditions and we can go back and figure out what was the original text saying? And the original text didn't have verse 34. Simple as that. But back to verse 35. You get the impression from our author Luke here that things are just going along great, aren't they? Paul and Barnabas are at the home church. They're just doing what they're called to do. They're preaching and they're teaching. They're two different things, by the way, but that's a different sermon. Wouldn't it be nice if it just stayed like that? Things just continued along perfectly, right? They just kept teaching, they kept preaching. They're all believers, after all. We all know that faithful believers don't have conflict, right? Not quite. Which brings us to our second point, reality. So we had rejoicing as the gospel redeems conflict, and now we have reality. Conflict still happens, despite the truth of the gospel. See, even faithful believers have conflict. Verse 36, let's have a look at it. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let's return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now, Barnabas wanted to take with them John, called Mark. But Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. Some translations say uh, abandoned. Verse 39, and there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. So Paul and Barnabas have this disagreement. John Mark, better known as Mark, the author of the Gospel of Mark, is actually Barnabas' cousin. And Barnabas, this son of encouragement, always seeing the best in people wants to take Mark along. But then Paul recognises that last time Mark just disappeared. You can check it out in chapter 13. He disappeared before the work even began, it says. See, what happened was Cyprus wasn't, was a lot of hardship and not that much fruit. And so it seems that Mark might have disappeared because things just seemed a little bit too hard. So they disagree over this matter of Mark and they don't manage to work it out. And we see that Barnabas sails away with Mark to Cyprus, which is, incidentally, Barnabas' hometown. Now, what are we to make of this, church? 
Aren't these two people supposed to be God-appointed leaders in the early church? And didn't we just learn that the gospel turns conflict into rejoicing? I mean, like Wesley and Whitfield, right? If this can happen to them, what hope do we have? Because not only do we see conflict here, not only do we see conflict, we see complete division, a parting of ways. So clearly the gospel can bring joy, but it's not always applied, is it? So what hope do we have? Well, there are two answers to that. The first answer is that we have no hope at all. Actually, you can't avoid conflict. You cannot avoid conflict. But that's not all. See, conflict is part of the human condition, and being a believer does not make you immune to conflict. But the second answer is, is that perhaps we can learn from this episode ourselves and maybe even manage better on occasion than we saw between Paul and Barnabas. This will be points three and four today. But to the first point, the, the fact that conflict is a reality. See, it gets even worse because sometimes there'll even be division. And sometimes there's nothing you can do about that either. This is a hard reality. Let's sit with this. Again, let's understand the gravity of the situation here. Paul and Barnabas. Do you remember where their relationship started? See, Paul had just been converted on the road to Damascus. And he arrives in Jerusalem after spending some time teaching in in Damascus. Uh, Evidently, he's known to Barnabas, who must have been in Damascus when Paul was there. Because see what Acts chapter 9 says. Acts chapter 9 verse 26. You can go there if you like. But I'll read it out. Acts 9, 26. And when he, Paul, had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. See, Paul was a great persecutor of the church before he was converted. And they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But see, Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So Barnabas is Paul's champion and one of the first to welcome him into the community. And not only that, when Barnabas is first sent to Antioch, right after the gospel exploded there, he comes and remember, he encourages the church. But we see in, again in Acts chapter 11, verse 24, this is what happens. Barnabas has just come up to Antioch to encourage everybody there. He says he was a good man, Barnabas, full of the Holy Spirit and faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for... Saul, otherwise known as Paul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year, it says, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. So when the church was exploding, the first person that Barnabas thought of was Paul. Not only that, they've been on a mission trip together. They faced persecution Together. They've almost been killed together on mission in the other Antioch in Pisidia. And again at Iconium. They've just overcome the controversy of circumcision together. So how can this happen? How can this happen? To two people who love the Lord, who love each other, who've been through so much together, how can this happen? I want to do two things. I want to try and see what's being implied here by Luke, but I also want to try and draw some generalities out of the text 
in light of this book of Acts and also in light of the canon of Scripture. I managed to lock my iPad while I'm talking, which isn't that useful. So let's try and piece together what happened between Paul and Barnabas. I mean, we know the summary, right? They disagreed about Mark. That's the summary. But let's talk specifics. Here's the starting question. It's kind of like the large, smelly rhino in the room, isn't it? Whose fault was it? Whose fault was it? Can you tell? See, Luke does a masterful job of reporting facts without attributing blame. And I think, to a degree, we need to follow that example. In fact, Luke is so careful not to attribute blame that he does something really interesting in the Greek here that the ESV actually misses in its translation. See, the word here for separate, when it says that Paul and Barnabas separated, he puts that in in something called the passive voice. Now, what the passive voice means is that the person who's doing the verb isn't actually doing the verb. They're having the verb done to them. Okay? So, and the word is a long Greek word that I could say, but you're not going to remember it anyway. Um, It's apikitsamai. But anyway... Apekorizomai. Okay, there you go. It's even longer than I thought it was. It's in the passive voice. So what it's actually saying is instead of Paul and Barnabas separated, it's Paul and Barnabas were separated. Or Paul and Barnabas became separated. By what? By the disagreement. See, he depersonalizes the cause. But he also, I think, despite that, despite being so careful, see, both of these people were still in ministry when Luke, Luke is writing this letter. He doesn't want to throw them under the bus. But he does give us enough clues, I think, for us to piece some things together. So we know we've already said Barnabas sees the best in people. He's the son of encouragement, isn't he? And that is an excellent quality. But it's not always that helpful. Sometimes it leads to blind spots. And it seems that in this instance, this might have been the case with Mark. But on the flip side, wasn't Paul being ungracious here? I mean, Paul himself, right, says in 1 Corinthians 13 that love always, what? Always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres, right? What about grace, Paul? Fair point. So it seems that they're both actually at fault. But I want you to notice two other things that Luke shares with us that he didn't need to share with us. First, the very next thing that happens after the sharp division, what is it? You can see it in verse 39, the second half of verse 39. What does it say? It says, Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. The word he uses for sail away, ekplio, is a word that's only used in the New Testament three times, and all three times are in the book of Acts by Luke. Uh, and it always means to sail away from somewhere. See, in other times, Luke says they took a ship to, or they sailed to this place. But this is ek plio, out of, sailing out of somewhere. So there's a, a suggestion of Barnabas just upping and leaving. He's not going to Cyprus, although that's where he goes. He sails away from the conflict. Second, notice this, Paul is commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. Did you see that? So it seems that they're behind Paul. Now, what I think we can safely deduce here is that Barnabas chose to leave when the conflict happened instead of staying to work it out. He put an end to all discussion. 
Now, it's possible that Mark was wrong about Paul. In fact, I'd say it's even likely that, Mark was wrong about, that Paul was wrong about Mark, rather. But see, he never had the chance to be properly challenged, did he? They never had the opportunity to take the question to the leadership of the Antioch church and to sit under its authority. Why? Because Barnabas left. And it makes sense that someone who sees the best in people might also be a conflict avoider. Maybe he doesn't want to put Mark through that, but it effectively ended the relationship with him and Paul. I think it's important to note here that the conflict here had nothing to do with doctrine, it had nothing to do with belief, it was about personality and it was about preferences. See, Paul and Barnabas had conflict not because they're Christian, not because they're leaders in the Christian church, but because they're human. It's part of the human condition. See, conflict is all around us. Look at Israel. Look at Russia. Look at the conflict that surrounded the referendum. And I don't care which side you voted. Most people who voted, voted because they voted for a good reason for something. But the conflict that arose around the referendum was disturbing. And what about at home? Do we fight with each other? What about with our parents, with our kids, with our friends, with our workmates? We see conflict everywhere. But here's the thing, in this instance, it's not the fact of conflict that was the problem. In fact, perhaps it was necessary for this specific conflict to happen in order that growth might result for both Paul and for Mark and for Barnabas. You know, we know that iron sharpens iron and you can't sharpen iron without iron hitting iron. That's conflict. The problem is the nature of the conflict and the division that resulted from the conflict and the harm that this division caused for all involved. So that's the reality of conflict. First, that it happens. There's no avoiding it. And second, that it hurts. And it really does hurt. Conflict hurts. But why does Luke decide to share this story with us? Have you wondered that? I mean, why not brush... It's not like he told every single story that happened for Paul. Why not just brush over it? Why not just say that Paul went to here and Luke went here? Why does he need to mention the conflict? Why not just present a rosy picture? He could just skip the conflict part altogether. He could, but he doesn't. And I think there are a couple of reasons for that. First, to demonstrate that the Scriptures are truthful. One of the greatest evidence for the Bible's truthfulness over and against the truthfulness of other contemporary documents is that it reports facts that are inconvenient for the author. It reports facts that embarrass the author. In legal terms, this is called adverse evidence, and it's considered reasonably strong evidence. But I suggest that there is another reason that Luke includes this story for us. In fact, it's two reasons, and they form points three and four of our outline. I actually think the very short sentence that forms the final verse of this chapter is perhaps the most overlooked in this chapter but also possibly the single most important verse in this chapter. Let's read it together and explain what I mean. Verse 41, And he, that's Paul, went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Doesn't sound like much. It just says that Paul moved on to the next place, right? Kind of, but not really. See, because Luke has posed a question for us in this message, in this passage. What do we do when conflict happens. 
Well, the truth is that Scripture has a lot to say about how to manage conflict. But what I wanted to hear is what this passage specifically has to say to us here today. I don't think it's any accident that this passage has come on a week when things are going crazy in the world. And I don't think it's an accident, actually, that it happened to fall to me to teach it. Because I've seen some conflict. If you know me at all, you know that I've lived some of this stuff. And what I want to try and do is, is to demonstrate that there are two appropriate responses to conflict that this passage can teach us, which form points three and four in our outline. Point three, to resolve, to press on anyway. And point four, to rely on God's providence. Let's look at the first response to conflict, point three. Have resolve, keep going, press on. You see, maybe you can relate to Paul. Perhaps you've been through conflict. What do you do when it happens? What did Paul do? Did he simply give up and call it quits? You know, you can just imagine him saying, that's all, Luke, I give up. I'm done. I'm, I'm done with the church. I'm going to go and discover myself in Turkey. Something, you know. I'm done with leadership. It's all over. Because let me tell you, some people have conflict and it's all over. They're done with that person or they're done with that group of people, or they're done with, that ch- with church altogether, or they're done with God altogether. There are some people who will have conflict and like a badly formed piece of clay in a hot kiln will simply crack. There are others who go through that same fire and come out stronger than ever. What will conflict do to you? It seems that Paul is one of the latter here. The conflict, it still causes pain, don't get me wrong. See, these people, they're not untouched by the conflict, but they're not necessarily worse off either. Somehow they've come through it, but instead of giving up, they've matured. They've learned some things about themselves. They've learned some humility. Learned what it really means to show grace to people. All of a sudden, some of these lessons become a little less academic, don't they? But also look at this, verse 40. In what manner does Paul keep going? It says, Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. He chooses fellowship, doesn't he? He chooses accountability and he seeks discernment. He chooses fellowship. He chooses to be accountable and he continues to try and discern the will of God along with his community. So that's the first response to conflict, and that's at point three, resolve to keep going. Don't give up, but also do it in the right way. And the why, in a sense, for Paul doing this is kind of easy. See, Paul has a mission to share the gospel to the ends of the earth, we've said. This is what he knows he needs to keep going for. The mission is too important to give up. And that will provide some motivation. But the real question, of course, is how do you keep going? When conflict happens, how do I keep going? Let me state it differently. When people are being difficult, how do you keep the main thing the main thing? And this brings us to our second response and to point number four for this afternoon, rely on God's providence. As we will see, it's relying on God and His providence that provides the how for point three's exhortation to keep going. It provides the how. 
But to understand this truth in this passage, we need to, what we need to do is realise that this passage comes in the context of the book of Luke. And that book of Luke comes in the context of the entire New Testament. See, by the time Acts was written, Paul's already in imprisonment in Rome. Did you realise that? When Luke is writing this message, Paul is already imprisoned in Rome. And here's a list of the books that have already been written by Paul himself as Luke is writing the book of Acts. Galatians, 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Romans, Philemon. Paul said a lot in those letters that Luke is able to reflect on. Now we can draw some conclusions from this fact of history. And let's be looking out for evidence of God's providence as we do this. Because we know as we build a picture of Paul and Barnabas and Mark that these relationships do in fact improve before Luke has penned this letter of Acts. Do you realise that? There's a bit of evidence here. Number one, from Philemon verse 24, it doesn't have any chapters. Paul writes that Epaphras sends his greetings to sign off the letter. He says, also, so to Mark and Aristarchus and Demas and Luke, my fellow workers. So Mark has become a fellow worker with Paul by the time this book is written. Number two, Paul writes in 2 Timothy, it's written around the and we see that by this time there is a significant change in the relationship between Paul and Mark. 2 Timothy 4.11, Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you for he is very useful to me in my ministry. So Mark is useful to Paul and Paul appreciates him. Three, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 9.6 about Barnabas. See, Paul includes Barnabas alongside himself as someone who has the right to be supported for their work. He says, is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? So at the very least, Paul considers Barnabas a fellow worker of the same standing as himself. And not only does Paul do that in terms of his mission, but he also seems to keep the doorway open to reconciliation. It may be that he was wrong about Mark, potentially, but Paul ultimately didn't choose the division. We've seen here over time that he seems to exhibit two characteristics. Number one, humility, and number two, grace. Humility meaning he was willing to have his mind changed, accepted Mark. See, when you've made a public stand about someone, it's hard, isn't it, to publicly alter that view. That takes humility. And grace, he was willing to promote Barnabas despite the division. You don't promote someone when you're holding a grudge against them. Whatever hurt was caused by Barnabas when he sailed away for Cyprus... Whatever hurt that caused, Paul is still able to reflect. He's still able to reflect and he's still able to honour Barnabas in his position as a leader of the church. And not only do these relationships improve, but God's will gets done in other ways too. Did you notice something about the places that Paul and Barnabas ended up going to separately? See, Paul goes to Cilicia and Syria. We'll go back to the map if we can, Dave. Cilicia. Syria is that whole area with Antioch and Tripoli and Edessa. Cilicia. Iconium, just there at the edge of Cilicia. Galatia is just above that. And Cyprus is that little island in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea. 
So Paul goes to Syria, Cilicia. Barnabas ends up in Cyprus. Now look back at verse 36 for me. Look at your text. Verse 36. Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Do you know where they went on their first missionary trip? All those places, same places. Between what we see here in the first couple of verses in chapter 16, this is exactly what they do between them. So there's significant truth here that despite conflict, in the end, things work out according to God's plan. In other words, despite division, God's will ends up being done. Now, I mentioned Wesley and Whitfield earlier and the conflict they had, but I didn't tell you the end of the story. See, they never agreed with each other on some finer points of theology, but they managed to come to a point where they respected each other in the end. At one point, one of Whitfield's followers remarked this. He said, we won't see John Wesley in heaven, will we? Whitfield humbly replied, yes, you're right. We won't see him in heaven. He will be so close to the throne of God and we will be so far away that we won't be able to see him. How good is that? And so when Paul is writing the book of Romans and he comes to 8.28, all things work together for good for those who love God who are called according to his purposes. Do you think it's likely that this sort of conflict would have been included in those all things, perhaps? Is the conflict you've seen and that you've experienced part of God's plans for you? I mean, think about it. I mean, perhaps you believe you're living in the one exception to this biblical rule. Because it's easy to think, I think, that the conflicts that we're going through couldn't possibly be part of God's plans for us, for our lives, for his mission, for the church, for the world. I mean, intellectually, of course, we all know that God is in control, right? But how do we go living this out? When your hopes crumble, especially hopes in other people, how do you go trusting God's plans? But it's actually worse than we think because conflict, as we've seen, is everywhere. It's a part of our broken world. You see, there are a few typical reactions to conflict in our world. It's either to run away and avoid it, to fight, or to concede at the expense of truth, which is another way of avoiding it. So people either fight aggressively or they tend to avoid. But none of these is helpful in the long term. And there is a better way, a way that requires both courage and grace, both humility and strength. And we don't have the capacity for this sort of action, let alone to be able to see God's plans through the conflict. At least not in our own, we don't. I mean, do you think Paul, in his natural personality, would have found it easy just to ignore and forgive and to show grace, to keep pressing forward and ignore everything that happened? I don't think it would have been easy in his flesh. But unlike Paul, we can see, like Luke, from our vantage point, that it all works out in the end with both Paul's mission and with his relationships. But see, Paul doesn't know that at this point. He's not aware that it's all going to work out. So how does he manage to press on? Well, he trusts God's providence, that God has a plan, even through the hardship, that God is working to bring about his will. He has, in one sense, already achieved his will. And this is where we come full circle, back to where we started. Through conflict, the gospel brings joy. We can rejoice despite conflict, despite our hardships. Let me explain what I mean. Imagine for a second that this principle of applying the gospel to conflict was utilized by Paul and Barnabas before Barnabas sailed away. How could it have gone? 
Okay, Paul, you don't think John Mark's reliable. Fair enough. Have you spoken to him about what happened? He's obviously keen to join again. What do you need to see or what do you need to happen to earn his trust, for him to earn your trust again? And, and Barney, stop avoiding the conflict on behalf of John Mark. I know you want to protect him. That's admirable. He's your younger cousin. But Paul has a point, doesn't he? Instead of running away from the hard conversation, let's work this out together. But that requires grace and it requires courage. The reality is that there's sometimes, though, still division. Sometimes, despite our own best attempts, even. So that when Paul writes about conflict, it isn't theoretical for Paul anymore. This is what Paul wrote to the Romans in Romans chapter 12. Bless those who persecute you, he said. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honourable in the sight of all. And get this, listen to this. 12.18 of Romans. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. There's an implication in that line. As much as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. The implication is that sometimes it's out of our control. Division still happens. How do we apply the gospel to that? Well, we've seen that we're to resolve to press on, right? We are to rely on God's providence. But also Paul, we can surmise, has learned something here that he goes on to explain to the Philippians. When he says in Philippians 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say again, rejoice. Now, we tend to think of rejoicing as being some sort of emotional state, don't we? But how can an apostle command someone to feel an emotion? The answer is they can't. And therefore, that's not what he's doing. We have to rethink that verse. See, Paul is saying, even in hardship, you can do this. You can rejoice. In fact, since we're told to do it always... And we're also told to mourn at times, to grieve at times, then the implication is that we can both mourn and rejoice at the same time. Because rejoicing is not a feeling, it's a discipline. It's in the times of deepest despair, in the times of deepest grief, in the times of our worst conflict. It's in those times that if you put your trust in Jesus, if you have done that, you can truly experience the closeness of God in a way that is otherwise impossible. It takes a certain amount of suffering to truly know God's provision. Paul says to rejoice in the Lord always. Do you remember the first time he called Jesus Lord? It's early in this very book, on the road to Damascus. See, Paul is blinded and he said, Who are you, Lord? And Jesus said, I am Jesus whom you're persecuting. And he sends him on his way. And Ananias comes and says, Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me to you that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and regained his sight. See, when Paul is going through conflict and yet still wanting to rejoice, this is the sort of thing he's thinking about. The fact that he met with Jesus. It's that relationship that allows him to continue on in strength, in grace, in humility, in joy. 
Well, the skeptic might say, that's easy for them. I mean, they're professional sufferers, right? Professional Christians, at least. But the reality is, this is what Jesus offers to us all. We can all meet Jesus. We can all meet Jesus. His Spirit is living in each one of us, which enables us to do exactly this every single day. The freedom to rejoice in our conflict, which is why it says that if we confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. Because of the greatest conflict that ever was, the root of all other conflict between human sin and God, who made humanity in his own image. But see, Jesus bore that conflict on his body, on the tree. He overcame the conflict so that you too can overcome the conflict. So it's true that we don't have the ability to overcome conflict, to push on, to trust and to see God's plans clearly. We don't have that ability in ourselves. But we can still do it. Why? Because it is an inherited ability from the Spirit of God inside of us, which is in all those who've put their faith in Jesus. This is what empowers Paul. It's also what motivates Paul. Paul preaches to himself. Preach to yourself, Christian. Every morning, preach these truths to yourself. You are a child of God, saved by grace through faith. God loves you. He wants you in his family. He has a plan for you. He has good news for you. Preach this to ourselves daily. This reality changes everything. It's exactly what we need to be doing. And this is the full circle. That the gospel brings rejoicing even for Paul, even in the midst of division, even when he couldn't work it out. And yes, this side of eternity, conflict will still happen and no, the church is not immune from conflict. When conflict happens, you can press on anyway. Specifically, press on into your God-given mission to live out and to share the gospel. Because when conflict happens, you can trust God's providence. He has already proven his faithfulness and he will continue to be faithful. He will continue to be faithful, Christian. As Tony prayed, he knows every hair in our head. As we sang, God is a miracle worker, a way maker. He has a way. What are you struggling with? Is there conflict in your life that you're struggling with? Are there relationships that need repair? Are there personal conflicts Is there a conflict between you and God? Is there sin? God has a way. God has a way. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are so good. You are so good. Father, it is a privilege to come and to study your word together. It is a privilege to be able to experience your goodness to us. Not just to know it intellectually, God, but to know in our hearts, to know deep in our hearts that you truly are good, that you truly do love us. And so, Lord, I just I pray that we would take that gospel, that we would preach it to ourselves daily. But as we consider the conflicts in our lives, to consider the conflicts even in the past, the conflicts that are now, the conflicts that are future, Lord, that we would continue to bring them before you that we would trust your providence, Lord God, that we would press on into all that you have for us. And Lord, that you would make a way, miracle worker. In Jesus' name we pray together.
Amen. Thanks for listening to the teaching podcast of Calvary Chapel, Newcastle. If you'd like to check out more of our teachings, please visit ccn.org.au forward slash teachings.